This is OperaFix for February 12, 2018. We have two interviews from the February 9th Philadelphia premiere of George Benjamin and Martin Crimp's Written on Skin, which is running through February 18th. First, Chuck interviews the director, William Curley, followed by an interview with Christina Saba, who's performing the role of Second Angel and Marie. This is Chuck Sachs from Indie Opera Podcast, and I'm talking with William Curley at the Academy of Music on the afternoon of the opening night of Opera Philadelphia's new production of George Benjamin and Martin Crimp's Opera Written on Skin. Hello, William. How are you today? Hello, Chuck. Well, I'm very excited. Uh, I'm looking forward to the opening, which is uh, in a, just a few hours' time. It looks like Opera Philadelphia has become one of your two American creative homes, along with Castleton Festival in Virginia. What is it that keeps bringing you back here? Well, you know, Chuck, I'm a freelance person, so uh, what I hope is that people will come knocking at my door and say, would you like to come out to play? And I'm lucky enough that David Devan and his wonderful team at Opera Philadelphia have kept inviting me back. So you're right that I, I made a show in Castleton, uh, Virginia, with Lauren Mazel in 2007, and that was a rape of Lucretia that then we were asked to bring to the Perlman Centre, and so began it, and then powder her face after that. And now I'm lucky enough to be working on the main stage of the Academy, this wonderful old theatre, um, doing this uh, brand new uh, production of Written on Skin. What was your vision for this production? And if I may ask, do you believe you achieved it? Well, it's interesting, you know. We're faced with a real challenge in this piece where we have to tell a story that happens 800 years apart, but also simultaneously. So the angels are effectively present-day or slightly futuristic uh, uh, characters. But Martin Crimp and George Benjamin talk about them as bridges to this past, to this medieval world, this world of illuminated manuscripts um, from, you know, 800 years previously. And in fact, the, the opera begins with this extraordinary time travel. Uh, the first injunction is to get rid of the modern world, to push concrete and aluminium back into the earth and to time travel 800 years back to the time when books were written on skin, is what they say. So the vision, I suppose, the challenge is to be able to somehow to tell a story, to design a theatrical set and costumes that happen in two time zones all at once. And so somehow we had to make sure that we were finding a way of illuminating these manuscripts, but also of doing so in a way that um, answered modern technology at the same time as answering ancient technology. So I hope that we found in our design a way to do that. We're in the world of concrete, but also in the world of gorgeous Eve Klein blue and of the gold and uh, gorgeous azure colours that were used in these extraordinary manuscripts that you can see, these illuminated manuscripts that took many years to make. Um, was George Benjamin or Martin Crimp here at all during this process? No, uh, George is coming, uh, Sir George, as we should now call him, okay. because he's been recently uh, knighted, and quite right too, because he is a wonderful ambassador for music and an incredible uh, composer and musician. But he's coming to the first night tonight, but we haven't seen him along the way in the process. I went to see him in London uh, when we were first talking about the piece, 
and uh, picked his brains for all that I could. Uh, Martin Crimp, I've seen his plays over the years and, and loved them, Chuck, absolutely loved them all the way along. And there's a muscularity and a pure theatricality in his writing that I know uh, George, Sir George Benjamin, has, has liberated a new energy in him and they love working together. Um, and the first thing they did was Into the Little Hill, which was based on the Pied Piper story. Uh, this is their second opera together, and at the moment they're in preparation for a brand new production, um, which is going to be, uh, I think, premiering in the spring at the Opera House. And of course, Katie Mitchell, who was the original director of this piece, is directing that new production. And um, how collaborative was your working relationship with Lauren Maisel during your five years as resident stage director for the Castleton Festival? Well, Chuck, I was extremely fortunate because uh, meeting Lauren Maisel uh, meant that, um, and him being so in favour of my work and so uh, such a brilliant collaborator, meant that I was able to travel the world with him. You know, we did... Uh, would you believe it? We did the Chinese premiere of the Barber of Seville in the National Centre for Performing Arts in Beijing, China. We did that together in a brand new production. We went to um, Oman, where we did uh, a bohème at the Royal Opera House in Muscat, Oman. And the hilarious thing was, we were doing a bohème, which was, of course, you know, full of snowy scenes. And then as soon as you went out through the stage door, it was 49 degrees centigrade. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but certainly ever so sticky. Um, so we, uh, we went there, we did shows at Berkeley, California, took our, the Rape of Lucretia that I brought here. So Laurie Mazel was an incredible uh, ambassador and advocate and collaborator, terrific um, person in my life who has inspired a great mentor, and I miss him greatly. But um, leg these legacies continue with artists, artists, and they, they pass on the baton to the next generation. And it's thanks to Lauren Mazel that I'm here. Uh, but no, first of all, he invited me to work on his Young Artists Programme at his country seat in Rappahannock County, Virginia, where he has this incredible estate uh, with a little theatre in it, which is where I first made that uh, Rape of Lucretia in 2007. And then we did lots of those Britain chamber operas. Then he built a big opera house on his, uh, on his land there uh, called the Castle Film Festival Theatre, where we were able to do L'Enfoy les Sortilèges and bigger projects like the Bohème and uh, Barbara Seville that we took to Bari in, uh, in Puglia in Italy. So really, from uh, that small base with his Young Artists Programme in the Easter of 2007, um, it was like an acorn from which a mighty oak grew. And um, we're still ricocheting around the world, uh, thanks to, to Lauren and everything that, uh, that he gave me. He was a, a great inspiration, a phenomenal mentor, and, um, and a superb musician. Is that where you started directing Britain? Um, because you're known as a Britain specialist. And what is it about Benjamin Britten's works that has so engaged you? Well, um, the, the, I have directed a lot of Britain, uh, Britain's work back in the UK as well, and I also uh, directed the 50th anniversary production of Gloriana, which was Britain's coronation opera, written for Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953. I directed it in 2003, uh, at the Snape Maltings, which is Britain's concert hall in Aldborough, where he lived all those years. Um, and I also directed Let's Make an Opera, which is a children's opera at the Jubilee Hall in Aldborough. And if you're mad about Britain, Chuck, what happens is if you get to direct Britain's work at Aldborough, it's like bringing it home. It must be a little bit like it is directing Wagner at Bayreuth. But 
Britain's work I just find incredibly inspiring because it, he, he does something with music and theatre. It's a little bit like what uh, George Benjamin and, and Martin Crimp have done with this piece. Um, everything matters. There is no, um, no ballast, nothing spare. Everything on stage is what we call a performative utterance. It's saying something that actually does something. It's not just verbiage by the yard. And that's what I love about Britain's work. He found uh, theatricality and musicality. And I was lucky enough to, another of my great mentors was um, uh, a wonderful director called Basil Coleman, who directed lots of the original productions of Britain's operas. So he directed the first production of Billy Budd in 51. He directed Turn of the Screw in 54. He directed Let's Make an Opera, The Little Sweet, the children's opera. Yes. And in fact, I had him in the audience when I directed Gloriana Oldsborough and when I directed The Little Sweet there. And he was always tremendously encouraging. And I, he, he died uh, in 2013. May he rest in peace. But he, he made me one of his trustees. And so I'm lucky enough to be carrying on uh, Basil's memory. He, um, in his will, he um, left the proceeds from the sale of his house to all productions and to the Royal College of Music in London for young singers, for them to have the Basil Coleman Opera Award. So, again, we're all part of this continuum. I didn't get to meet Ben and Peter, uh, but I did get to meet Basil, who was a close friend and great collaborator on those original productions. And there's much to learn from the way that uh, productions have been handled in the past. But when you're dealing with these great classics like Britain's work, like uh, I believe Written on Skin is a modern masterpiece, a modern classic, there will be many reinventions and there will be many reinterpretations. And if a work is truly great, then I believe that it can uh, tolerate many different reinterpretations by artists through the years. I believe that we'll still be singing uh, Britain's music in another hundred years. And certainly I believe that Sir George Benjamin's operas are, are going to go on forever because um, they really do encapsulate the best of music and theatre working together to make something greater than some of the parts. I, I would have to agree with you. It's uh, Britain as a personal favourite, and of the Shakespeare settings in opera, his Midsummer Night's Dream is truly astonishing and hilarious. I agree. I have yet to direct that piece, but um, I do hope I get asked to one day. Uh, this is an appeal going out <laughs> to any producers out there. Um, I would love to have a crack at it, and, uh, and all his operas, of course, but um, yes, uh, Benjamin Britten and his genius. I mean, the, the really sad thing, Chuck, is that he dies when he's just 63, you know, and Michael Tippett, who I was lucky enough to meet along the way, lived to be 93, so I often wonder what Britain would have made of another 30 years if we'd have had that King Lear... Uh, with Fisher Discal playing King Lear and Peter Pierce playing The Fool, if we'd have had Anna Karenina that he nearly wrote. Uh, but it wasn't to be. So thank goodness he started early. Um, I also I read that you recently directed your first feature film. Congratulations on that. The Mad Axeman. Thank you. What brought this new part of your career about? Well, in 1997, a long time ago, I directed a play uh, starring an actor who's now become quite famous, an old friend of mine who was one of my understudies at the National Theatre. He's called Martin Freeman, and now he's a very well-known actor. I think you might know him from uh, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, that franchise, uh, the, the British Office version of The Office, and anyway, many other films. But Martin uh, was in that play when I directed it at the Edinburgh Festival. And um, it's about Frank Mitchell, who was uh, a member of the criminal underworld in the 1960s, an associate of the Cray twins, who were big underworld bosses who were very powerful uh, in London in the 60s. And um, their friend Frank Mitchell was holed up in Dartmoor Prison. Um, and uh, 
they decided that they would um, effect this enormous publicity queue by springing their mate Frank Mitchell from Dartmoor Prison because it was most unfair that he was incarcerated there uh, on an indeterminate sentence. So anyway, the story is about Frank Mitchell and him being sprung from Dartmoor. How did it come about that it became a movie? Well, what happened was that I got a call out of the blue. And as I say, in a freelance life, uh, one is hoping that uh, people come knocking on the door saying, do you want to come out to play? And it was a film producer called Rebecca Long who had seen my play in London when it transferred from Edinburgh, having won some prizes in Edinburgh. And she saw the play and she said, I have always had a dream to make a film out of this brilliant play that, that I saw. And the play was called Jump to Cow Heaven by Jill Adams. Um, so when she rang me up, I thought it was going to be, will you help me to turn it from a play into a screenplay? I didn't for a moment, Chuck, dream that she might be asking me if I wanted to direct my first feature film at the age of 50. Um, so I was in a meeting with her, and I, and I suddenly thought, uh-oh, I think she's about to ask me if I want to direct it myself. And Chuck, I'm a theatre person. I've directed many plays and many operas. I, I, it's always live theatre. I've never directed any television or film. But again, it's one of those chances that comes along. And um, I was half of a mind to say, well, look, Rebecca, that's a very kind offer, but I don't know anything about directing films. But this little demon inside one, this little um, excited, um, crazy artist inside one says... Uh, Go for it. Yes, please. Of course, I'd love to direct it. And then, of course, that's the challenge one has to rise to. I had to then find out how to become a film director. I had a lot of great help. But So the film is made. The film, a bit like Frank Mitchell in Dartmoor Prison, is still waiting for its release date. Um, but uh, I'm hopeful that it will come in the next few months. And the Mad Axeman is the uh, name that he was given in the gang, though ironically the uh, premise of the film that he never wielded an axe, and this was some stupid nickname that he'd been given by um, the tabloid press who were trying to sensationalise his case. Um, and uh, so the Mad Axeman, I just counsel uh, listeners out there, isn't some uh, terrible horror film. It's, um, it's about a great injustice done to a gentle giant who was part of, um, who was much abused by the villains who were uh, the Cray twins in the underworld of London in 1966. Well, I, I look forward to seeing that when it comes out, and I look forward, I'm getting to see the opera tonight. This is my second time seeing this. I saw the Lincoln Center production, so I'm excited to see someone else's vision for it. Well, you know, the funny thing is, Chuck, that I didn't see Katie's production. And um, so funny things will happen in rehearsal where the singers who might have seen the previous production have said, oh, doesn't that happen at this point? And I'll say, well, it's not in the libretto. It's not in the score. And again, um, you know, I have great admiration for Katie Mitchell and the work she's done in plays and in operas over the years. But I think, again, with a terrific piece like Written on Skin, it's wonderful that it's able to have a new manifestation. And I do hope that people uh, will enjoy this production for Opera Philadelphia. Thank you for speaking with me. This is Chuck Sachs and William Curley at the Academy of Music. Hello, this is Chuck Sachs from Indie Opera Podcast, and I'm talking with Christina Zabo. Hello, Christina. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. So how has your experience been working with Opera Philadelphia? I think Opera Philadelphia is a wonderful company. I was here three years ago to do... Um, uh, a small production called Spadba, and they were awesome then, and they're an awesome company this time. Just everyone's super friendly, and I love the their focus on innovative new works, and this has been a really exciting experience to be a part of. So who do you play in this opera, and what's their place in the story? 
I play two characters. I am Angel 2 and Marie, and um, the angels are not exactly the kind of angels you think about. Uh, they're more the angels that wreak havoc. So um, <clears throat> Angel 1 starts the action of turning back time. So we're talking about, about playing with time and going back to the story of Agnes and the Protector. And these angels are the ones that instigate this entire action. So we toy with these characters from the past. Um, that's the character of the angel. And I'm uh, angel two and three work in partnership at all times. We're constantly together. Um, and then uh, I also play a character in the past. Uh, Marie is the sister of Agnes. Now, did you know that you would be working on a new production of Written on Skin before or after you were contracted to originate a role in George Benjamin's new opera, Lessons in Love and Violence? I didn't know it was an entirely new production, actually, until, uh, until everything was already set in motion. So it's been rather an exciting time. I had seen the original production on YouTube, um, and I sang, um, I sang the same roles in Toronto uh, with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra with George Benjamin conducting. Um, and so I was excited to be part of this piece again because I think it's remarkable. So that was a stage production, a stage concert production, or was it, it was a se it was a semi-staged semi-staged uh, production? Yeah. So then you, now you're lucky you get to do a fully yeah, stage production. Fully st yeah. Then you're taking this. You're going again, taking this to Europe. Opera Philadelphia's production, or, or you're doing it another production. I'm doing another. I'm doing another uh, a concert version of Written on Skin uh, with the Holland Festival um, in June. All right, can you tell me anything about the new opera, Lessons in Love and Violence? I don't think I'm at liberty to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I, what can I say about it? Uh, it's. I know it's a new, another collaboration between Sir George Benjamin and Martin Crimp. Yes, it, it is that. It has uh, Barbara Hannigan attached to the project, and uh, she was the original Agnes in Written on Skin. Um, I think that's it uh, in terms of that. Uh, Musically, it's, it's I, I think you have to wait and see to what, what you'll get. Okay, well, <laughs> I hope that it comes to New York or to the East Coast. Um, in the past two to three seasons, you've been performing a good amount of contemporary works, including many new premieres. Has this been a conscious choice? It was, I, I've been doing a lot of contemporary works for, for, a long, for a long time, actually. I was thinking about when I started to do that, and even as a young artist at the Canadian Opera Company, um, we, there were new commissions all the time, and um, we were either workshopping them or uh, premiering them <clears throat> on stage uh, in Toronto. So it, it's, it sort of happened to me, but um, I very early on um, realized that I had an affinity for this kind of music, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to to work with living composers and to premiere new works and be involved in these projects that are have this um, freshness to them uh, because everything's so brand spanking new. So it, it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice, but I'm, I'm glad it happened. Yes, it does seem that there is a lot of new opera being created in, in Canada. I do wish more of it would come here. Um, can you talk to me about any of the other composers who are doing new work there? Um, well, I work a lot with Tapestry Opera, um, and uh, they, they, we just did a premiere in the spring of Aaron Gervais' um, opera called Oksana G. A lot of the um, opera, uh, a lot of it is, is more chamber, which, which I find fascinating. And I really love that Philadelphia was, I feel, one of the first opera companies to, to really embrace that uh, form in chamber opera because there's so much more available to, um, 
in a chamber opera setting. Um, uh, I was also in San Francisco, and they started a, uh, a similar program. And now the uh, COC is uh, in, in Toronto is also doing a, um, a partnership with Against the Grain Theatre, doing, again, chamber. And I find that really exciting because the intimacy of that um, is, is different than a big-scale opera. Um, I find this uh, written on skin a particularly wonderful thing in that I haven't always seen a successful grand scale opera, uh, um, and I feel this is this is one of them um, that is is successful. But I'm excited to see the the varieties of opera that we're getting, not necessarily, not necessarily the large scale, but also on the smaller scale. I know that you performed Ewartung by Schoenberg in 2015. What was that like? Uh, Ewartung was one of the most uh, probably one of the uh, the highlights of my career. It was um, not something I was even on my um, <clears throat> in my mind, but uh, but Alexander Neff at the at the Kenny Opera Company had me sing for it, and I thought, really, do you want me to do that? And you know, as a mezzo soprano, I mean, I'm a high mezzo, but I thought it wasn't even in my wheelhouse. Um, but when I started to work on the score, it just it it fed me in a way that I can't even describe. Um, it. It's such an incredible piece, and that particular production, um, which has traveled the world, uh, the pairing of Bluebeard and Ervartum, um, that, uh, it, yeah, it was, I can't remember what I was thinking, the 80s, but it's a production that has, has actually been able to, to live. You know, some productions sort of age, don't yes. not age so well, but that Ervartum is remarkable. So I was excited to be part of that particular production. Um, the score was something so complicated that... Uh, I, it took me months, but I, I gave myself uh, you know page at a time, a page a page a week, and once you once you work on it, um, you work it into your voice. By the time you've worked it into your voice, it's almost half memorized. So, so it didn't take me as long as I thought it would, but it was it was such a thrill to be a part of that. What work did you need to create this role, and who becomes your dramatic partner in, in the monodrama? Um, who becomes a partner in a monodrama? Well, the, the the great part of that particular production is that there are other people on stage with me. They had uh, three, uh, three or four da dancer actor dancers ah, okay. on stage who are who act out sort of my madness and the visions of the 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 lover, and he's in he's in bed with. A woman. There are actual people sort of uh, acting that out, but there's also really cool things where there are people coming out of walls and uh, being lifted uh, out of this bed, and it's just um, it's really exciting. So there's there's that, but it's also <clears throat> you do feel. I remember every night when they wrap me into my uh, straight jacket. Straight jacket. I thought, holy crap! Here I am on stage by myself, wrapped in a straight jacket. What am I doing? And you feel, and they have this. They had a not a scrim, but it was it was this almost shield kind of thing because they put projections. So you're really encased in this world by yourself. It feels like, but the music is really your partner, and the conductor Johannes Dibus was my partner. So those kind of those are the things that held me in the in that moment. Well, it sounds like a fascinating production. How much of that is within the actual work? Is the actual work just supposed to be the one woman? I don't know. I, I guess it's open to interpretation. I'm not sure what the original stage production of it or what he envisioned for it. Mm -hmm. But um, I think this works particularly well, the way it's staged. Another new works you've, you've done recently, you played Dido in both the well-known personal opera Dido and Aeneas and the new work Aeneas and Dido by James Rolfe yes. at the Toronto Mask Theatre. Yes. What is Mr. Rolfe's take on this iconic story? 
Well, his vision of that was to take things from Aeneas's perspective, because in the in Purcell, it's he's pretty two dimensional. You know, he's sort of it's more Dido's story. So, um, for example, the 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 Rolf ends with an an, an aria of Aeneas, and his uh, it it really fleshes out his struggle as to leaving Dido, and it, the you know the facts are still the same. He still does leave, but. Their relationship is slightly more fleshed out. You see them together more than you do in the Purcell, and and you see more of Aeneas's journey. So I, I mean, I love the Purcell. I love the Purcell. It's one of my dream roles. <laughs> but um, it was it was fun to give her a diff different uh, mm -hmm. perspective. So in closing, I wonder what's next for you. Um, well, after we finish here, I go home and. Uh, I'm back in Toronto just for the month. Uh, I'm actually a sessional um, faculty member at the University of Toronto. So while I'm there, I'm f closing up my teaching and uh, doing two concerts. Um, one is actually um, with the Contemporary Ensemble at U of T. Um, we're doing Boulez, Le Marteau Sans Maître. And then I'm actually debuting a new song cycle um, by Jeffrey Ryan with the Canadian Art Song Project. Um, and uh, that's uh, just before I head off to England, and um, and then it's more George Benjamin, this time Lessons in Love and Violence. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming out to speak to me. I know I'm um, good luck with the opening tonight. Thank you very much. This has been Chuck Sachs and Kristen Zavo. And that's this week's Opera Fix. Thank you for listening.